Coach K, Duke's former coach, legendary, believes, one, the team is more important than the individual. Two, he expects each individual to perform at their very best. And three, the team needs a single shared objective function. You know what's legendary about Coach K? How he got crushed by Carolina in his last two most important games. Why, why you gotta bring up old stuff? <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hello. Sir, this is the Wendy's drive-thru. Hello. Have you ever done What's that at the Wendy's drive-thru? <laughs> no. What are you uh, talking about? I'm just saying hello. Uh, Every good time. to see you. I wanted to say hi. I mean, there we go. Go for it. Right. Awesome. Fair enough. You don't. Thanks. You, you don't. Could I can't? Like nothing's coming out here today. This is not a good start to an audio only situation. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah, doing great. How about you? Pretty nice. I keep telling people there's something about 2023 that this is the first year in a while where immediately I started writing the right year. Where me usually too. it no. takes me like day a month one. or so. I was yeah. 20, day one. I, day I one. think I was uh, looking forward to it. Maybe it's uh, an odd number. And Maybe. I'm just talking about the 23 there or something. I was like, yeah, I've been on ready. With that. I was yep. ready for 2023. So it feels good. Okay. Uh, please go rate and review the podcast. Helps people to find us. Appreciate that. And we love your listener mail. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. Love that listener mail. Thank you. Rate and review. Appreciate it. If you, you are rating to... and reviewing, could you put in a little comment about Dougal's intros, though, and just say they kind of suck? I mean, still give us five stars. But then... <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. We need to do that? No. <laughs> we need to do that? It's on today. Let's go. Spe- I'm ready. Speaking of that, you. speaking of that, we're going to start by talking about stupid stuff. Okay. There's this Wall Street Journal article by Laura Foreman called Big Tech Stops Doing Stupid Stuff. First and foremost, phenomenal headline, definitely an eye catcher, great job, and a good piece. I'll also state that big tech has not stopped doing stupid stuff, but yet and still, it slows. I think the more accurate would be big tech slows doing stupid stuff. It's like big tech is doing a sliver less stupid stuff. (laughs) A (laughs) sousson less stupid stuff. It's just not as eye catching. So yeah, the headline was brilliant. Love it. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to hit on a couple points and then we can uh, we can chitty chat about it. There's this one point. This is these are massive numbers here. Massive numbers. This one point is last year, more than a thousand tech companies laid off employees, resulting in 150,000 lost jobs. Mm -hmm. This year, it's been more than 23,000 as of about sometime last week. And I was reading this Business Insider article that did the math. I don't know why I had to reference an article to do really simple math, but I'm going to. That looked at the math of that, and it was something like 1,600 people a day, which is yeah. a pretty aggressive figure. So this is like this is real, right? This is this is real, um, and it's starting to get to the point where like we know people that are caught up in this, right? It's a it's it's messed up stuff. And so this is where going to the title of this, big tech stops doing stupid stuff, is because it discusses. The, the hiring practices uh, that organizations had, and then you have to kind of recoup that on the other side. And 
The, the, the next point I'll bring up, it says many of these workers were newly hired under the mistaken assumption that booming pandemic demand would become the new normal. This I want to say nonsense to. Nonsense. N-E-N-S-I-N-S-E. Nonsense. I want to say to this. You're going straight there. So first of all, human element, we know people impacted, totally sucks. Reach out if we can help, leverage your contacts. It just I just want to say that, right? Yeah. Like I this totally sucks. And we're gonna talk about the business strategy piece, the investing piece, and our take on some of the management decisions here. So let's just disconnect that from the human piece. It nonsense is right, Eagles. I mean, these companies, I have the figures in front of me. Here it is from September 2019 to September 2022, three year span. Apple's workforce grew by 20%, and Apple has the retail stores and everything else. Microsoft's rose by 53%. Google's parent, Alphabet, rose by 57%, and Facebook Meta ballooned by 94%. Let's start with Facebook. You doubled your employees in a three-year period, smack dab in the middle of a pandemic and a thousand, like that is idiotic. And I, I was telling you earlier, I want to say hindsight is twenty twenty here. I think you think that was idiotic at the time. How, what was the business case that the world has forever changed? We've been in a decade plus bull run with the stock market. And like, it's just the right time to double the size of your staff. I don't get it. No. And it that's the whole thing. I do not believe it's hindsight 2020. I think you do know at the time, but you you like to, and you're absolutely right with this, bring up incentives for a lot of things. Yeah. And here, the incentive structure for organizations is set up such that you can't miss out on potential upside, but you can make up for the downside, generally speaking. Here's what I mean. Bear with me. If you're an organization that's in like the quote unquote innovation space and the hot stuff, and let's just say that even if the pandemic demand isn't the new normal, there is a bit more bull market to run. You can't miss it. Like is the thought process. I'm not saying that you actually can't because companies manage around it, but like the thought process is, and you're incentivized to not miss it, but the risk for you the risk for you, and I'm not saying Skippy you, I'm saying you are the CEO or executive of the organization, is not that high on the downside. No, it's not. But the upside is pretty big for you if you catch that wave. And so I don't, I would be so surprised if you talk to any of the CEOs of this company and you were like, do you think what's happening right now in this boom during the pandemic is the new normal? If any of them said, yeah, I think this. I think we're gonna glide on this for the next twenty years. I like. I highly doubt that, but I think it's incentive structure. I wasn't ready to go there, and so this is off the cuff. Hopefully, I don't totally stick my foot in my mouth, which I'm none to do. Uh, right? I worked in banking for more than a decade, and I'm a value investor. So, right around 2017, 2018, I'm going, guys. the The market has run. Like we've done, and, and telling this to our leadership in the kindest way possible. It, this is where your point is 100% right. I'm going, the market's too th- frothy, froth. I can't talk. <laughs> Things are too expensive. Things are going to come crashing down, right? And yep. we need to like put a hold on this. Like may- Maybe our goals shouldn't be 25% growth of last year with the, just those blindless numbers, right? It's like, whatever you did last year, you have to do more. 
and you're always pushing the envelope until the big crash comes. And that's been seen in banking over and over again. But to your point, those execs, it's not that they don't care. It's that if they if they take that mindset, say, you know what, this year we're going to be flat or this year we're going to be down because we're taking a protective position here. If they're off by two years on that, they're fired. They're right. They, they go, well, all your competitors grew at 25%. It doesn't matter if they did a bunch of garbage loans that are going to go bankrupt five years later. So I 100% agree. And I love that you brought that perspective to it. I guess I don't think that makes it right. I don't know. Maybe there isn't a right in this situation. I'm definitely not saying any of this is right. Uh, I'm just saying that the going to the hindsight 2020 piece, I think people know at the time. You don't know exactly when I say that, I don't mean you don't know exactly what's about to occur. Like no one knows exactly what's about to occur, but that yeah. this is a risky maneuver with large downside. I think you do know this is not a surprise now. And you go, ah, yeah, well, you know, we had the time. Uh, well, sorry, we, we, at the time we, uh, we thought it was a good idea. The CEO uh, of Redfin, Glenn Kalman in here, mm-hmm. he says, uh, if he could go back 18 months, what he tell companies that are looking for profits is to just stop doing stupid stuff. And that is oftentimes in business and investing and in life. If you are looking to improve X, oftentimes what is missed is what is called a stop doing list. And that list can often like get you at least maybe not the whole way, right? But get you part of the way. And I think that's it. Like sometimes you just go like, what what should we stop doing as opposed to what are the new innovative things that we should do? The other quote I enjoy from back in my life is the next big thing might be the big thing you already have. I I always like love that yep. piece. Yep. I mean, when you say stop doing stupid stuff, I think Munger and I think inversion thinking of just like, hey, how much hiring could we do that would lead us to lay off 20% of our staff in a year? Oh, we could double our workforce. Okay, let's try that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I don't know where to... If you look at some of these employee counts, and Med is the easiest example here, right? I think back of the envelope, their appropriate staffing levels might be closer to September 2019 than they are for uh, September 2022. As we've mentioned... They doubled during that time. So if you do that rough back, back of the envelope math, and this is from memory, Scary. I think they laid off 13% of their workforce. Like they might have significant room to run in terms of a reduction of headcount. It's tough. I, I mean, that's that's too frightening for me to think about right now. I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, but the, the other thing to put in there is you have to think about the, the they have had growth. It's not, it's not like their business has gone back sure. to that level. And so- there's it's something in between, right? Most likely is the right answer. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I, I hear Bill Gurley in my head when we talk about those, like just that simple, let's pretend we're having a beer and we're, to, we're senior vice presidents at Facebook. I think that conversation is happening to say, even with growth, we pay our people incredibly well. We think we have the top talent in the world in a lot of cases. Like, we can't support growth. What we're not manufacturing widgets over here. We're not making r- railroad cars. Like yeah. we need to buy some more servers to support more traffic on Instagram. 
I think we can handle that without our headcount exploding. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, and let's not forget, Musk laid off 70% of Twitter. And as much as the human element of that sucks, the app still seems to work. Now, I don't know what's going to blow up six months from now, but like these tech businesses are not manufacturing or mining businesses. They're just not. Yeah, no, that that's true. That's true. Uh, I I think in the case of of Twitter specifically, and I don't know like Twitter all that well, but just going to let's say generic tech business lays off seventy percent of people, I would view that less as a we believe that seventy percent less people is the way that we should run, and more like we're re- we're going to rebuild this whole thing, and sure. so bring it down to bare bones and then rebuild, and it's likely going to land somewhere in the middle of of that place, but in the near term would not need to be back at where it was right to start. Yeah. Not anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah so absolutely. let me get your take on this. Cause again, there's no right answer here, but yeah. what I've read and I haven't done a deep dive on the Google layoffs that happened Friday is like a 6am email and a termination of all access. I'm sure what I'm reading is hyperbolic or exaggerated because it's an emotional time, but like, does that feel really inhuman almost there's no good way to do laughs let me say that first and foremost but i was surprised by that approach yeah you know but usually people when when they're trying to do something i'm genericizing this but you're trying to do something that you think i don't know right that has is of importance whether it's positive or negative importance and people say like what's the right way to do it and to your point there isn't a right way to do it I like to say, can we at least start with saying what are the wrong ways to do it? And like, let's avoid the wrong ways to do it. Going You're back turning to into Munger thinking. over there. Yeah. You're basically no, Munger now. Like, <laughs> I'm, pretty munger. I'm pretty much Munger. Yeah. But I think that that's the important place to start. And like, that's probably the wrong way to do it. I don't know, you know, exactly how it occurred, but I think that's probably the wrong way to do it. We've talked about this a few times with different organizations over the last, what, 18 months or so. We talked about the, was it better? dot com yeah. was that the organization like i don't know what that what was happening there then we, we talked about the oh, what was the other one the the guy that posted a crying picture of himself on linkedin <laughs> i don't even remember that company but that was so bad yeah there's that and then it was what was the or klarna i think it was klarna i think klarna was the organization where they went out to press and then posted their press release on slack yeah yep again i don't there isn't to your point, there isn't a right way to do this, but who whose playbook is that? Uh, that I don't is, know. You're just disconnected from humanity at that point. So, all right. The, well, last thing. So this week, and maybe I'm misremembering, maybe it's the last two weeks, I think Google, Amazon, Microsoft have all done significant layoffs. I don't remember this from years ago, but the Wall Street Journal broke those layoffs about 24 hours before they happened in all cases, meaning that those PR staffs went to the Wall Street Journal. And in in most cases, it was an exclusive Wall Street Journal story to try and get ahead of it. I don't know enough about public relations and human resources to know why that's smart. But that also caught me by surprise, I guess. Why should I know before the employees know? And why should the employees have to read the Wall Street Journal? to be in the loop yeah I, I mean look i i can understand getting ahead of it from a pr perspective so that you on the back end 
right? Have stories because you have to, as a company, you need to control the narrative. But yeah. to your point, those stories coming out 24 hours before they happen, like th that, th that timing is what feels weird to me, as opposed to even same day or day after or something along those lines. That is, that's strange. I mean, but at the same time, typically, because like for legal reasons, even you have to notify maybe not individual employees. I don't know where the law falls there, but, but the company knows that something like the company is typically aware that something is happening. You might go sure. to the organization oh. and saying, right, over the next three months, or I, I can't remember what the time period is, X will happen to our organization, but you don't know that you are part of that X, I think is the, yeah. is the issue. Anyway, let's, can we transition? I'm going to get yeah, you fired let's do it. Okay. Yeah. You want to fishbowl it? Yeah, but my fishbowl, you're not going to like. My fishbowl is about, <laughs> <laughs> I found this, this uh, Twitter guy named Strip Mall Guy. And it's just fascinating, man. There's some there's something beautiful about just saying what it is. <laughs> like don't like, don't beat around yeah. the bush. <laughs> He's like my expertise. His uh his title even says like basically this is boring stuff. I try and make it not boring. There's two things that I found really interesting. Yep. First is an office building, a hundred thousand square feet, purchase price a few years back for a hundred million dollars. Three years ago, we're going to continue this comparing three years ago to today. The rent was $8 million a year. Now you're half vacant in all likelihood, meaning your rent rates haven't changed, but you're only collecting for 50,000 square feet. So your rent is 4 million bucks a year. It still probably costs you $2.5 million a year to operate the thing. And you're still paying... $3 million in interest on your $100 million loan. Again, you got that at a great rate in 2009. But what that likely means is the owner of that office complex, and this is where we talked about SL Green, and I want to tie that conversation in shortly, is losing $1.5 million a year, and their $40 million down payment is completely wiped out. This might be dramatic. The numbers might be off by 20% here or there. But I think... This guy's point is this is happening all over the country. And what are the ramifications from that? And I think as a thought experiment, that's pretty easy to think about, right? You had this property that represented a significant investment for your company that all of a sudden is underwater. And it there, there's no, let's project the future out here, as scary as that is. There's no rosy picture in the next five years for this thing flipping around and turning profitable. I think this is also analogous. Agreed with you. And let's keep talking about real estate. But on as a related tangential aside, I'll say I think this is also analogous to what we talked about with consumers in my mind. I know I keep coming back to it. No, I agree. But I think Absolutely it's analogous. Agree. I think it's analogous. Well, and so last pod, you mentioned SL Green owns commercial real estate in Manhattan, some of the most desirable real estate in the world. I've owned the stock before. I bought the stock at the depths of the COVID lows simply based on the hypothesis that it's Manhattan real estate. After you mentioned it this week, I did a, not a deep dive, but I, I started pulling some numbers and looking at things going, it's dirt cheap, the dividend's huge. The problem is their revenues are declining so rapidly. You see this example taking place in their business model. I can't invest in the thing. I mean, because until occupancy rates get to a point that's sustainable and, and you truly get a bottom out here, 
you you don't know you could have all these properties even if they're really desirable properties that you lose money on and you lose money year over year until you yeah. manage to flip that yeah i mean this would be a case i'm not saying to invest in sl green absolutely yeah like i'm not saying that but this would be a case where if you did want to invest in sl green or some version of that i would say is absolute dollar cost averaging and uh reinvesting dividends like the whole uh, sure, because, sure. yeah because it's it's just because who knows who knows whether they'll come back right first of all but if you're investing in it that's your belief structure is that it'll come back so if you have that belief structure who knows then where the bottom is going to be and so i think it's in you just say like i'm going to put this amount in whatever a monthly basis or whatever it is reinvest dividends and then over the next five years see what starts to occur yep. um and I can yeah, get behind that idea. I mean, I'm still intrigued by the company because I think that real estate is valuable. And I think Manhattan is a different world. Like it, you're not talking about some suburban, you know, some suburban strip mall outside of Las Vegas or something that like, what is the sustainable competitive advantage? Like it's, it's, they're just yeah. going to build another one. It's, uh, <laughs> Manhattan is different. And that doesn't, I'll probably continue to watch us on green. But what I expect, again, I didn't do a deep dive. So just talking with a friend here, what I expect is their revenues to continue to decline, them to have to cut their dividend, them to have to diversify some properties, which means sell at a time when it's not ideal to sell. Yeah. When you're selling right now and your rents are down and interest rates are up, that's the next part that this strip mall guy kind of walks you through is if that same example where it you're at half occupancy. If you have to turn around and flip that thing, the lender loses money, the purchaser loses money, and the new purchasing party has more expensive interest. Like it, it's not fun for anybody out there no. at the moment. No, it's not. I think that's a, it's an interesting world to, to watch. Like the world of, I'll say REITs kind of broadly. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's yep. interesting to watch right now. All right. Can I, I dip on Dippity doodah? Yeah, go for it. All right, I'm going to dip into the fishbowl. And we brought up Bill Gurley earlier, the uh, the VC, the venture capitalist, often speaks some some wisdom. So he's somebody that comes up pretty frequently for us. Here, I'm going to talk about a, a tweet thread that he had. Twitter thread? I don't know the lingo Twitter, that the kids use. Twitter thread. Yeah. Twitter thread. Okay, Twitter thread that he had, which is something that he's been for a bit uh, coming out with these, uh, I'll just call them age-old uh, statements about like the world actually works this way, but I'm seeing this, right. He's been coming out with this, uh, over the last couple of years. So this one, it's a, like a 10, I think thread piece. I'm going to pull out just three of them, three of the tweets that he had in this thread. The broad lens on the thread is we've had it easy. Startups typically fail, but we've had it easy is like the umbrella and tweet number three, he says, cash is now hard to come by. Investors are expecting solid unit economics and earlier profitability. Everything is immediately 5 to 10x harder. And when he's saying harder, he's saying that it has been over the past few years. Yeah. As such, survival is now dependent on hardcore, disciplined, top decile business execution, which no one learned in the past five years. If I had to get anything tattooed <laughs> on my wall. Because I don't need to. I don't need to wear that. That's like painted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. What What do you call a wall tattoo? Um, <laughs> can you imagine? This is the kind of thing I would do, though. You go into a store and you're like, 
So I saw this something on somebody's arm. How do I get that on my wall? <laughs> I stopped somebody. I stopped somebody who was snow shoveling, and I said, "Where'd you get that?" He goes, "Amazon." I was like, "Like, it was, I asked it as if it was gonna be like some wait, wait, esoteric what? location." You wanted to know where he got a snow shovel? Snow shovel. You don't know how to purchase a snow I didn't. shovel. This was this was <laughs> the first year that we moved to uh, Colorado. <laughs> I said, "Where where would you acquire one of those?" All right. Anyway, back to this. So that was that was the first tweet, which I think is really powerful. The fifth in this thread, and feel free to hop at any time. The fifth in this thread, he says, he listened to this podcast from Shane Battier, one of the legends of basketball. Went to the legendary school of the Duke Blue Devils. Yeah, Had, the, don't don't. Anyway, all right. No, anyway, he listened to this podcast of, of Shane Battier, who went to Duke. And he says, when he was done with the podcast, he took some notes. Coach K, Duke's former coach, legendary, believes, one, the team is more important than the individual. Two, he expects each individual to perform at their very best. And three, the team needs a single shared objective function. You know what's legendary about Coach K? How he got crushed by Carolina in his last two most important games. Why why you got to bring up old stuff? (laughs) I think there's some, it's like, this is simple stuff, right? But I I love it. The ninth uh, tweet. In this thread, he says, startups slash private companies are not for everyone. If you don't want this type of environment slash responsibility, there are many wonderful jobs at large, profitable companies that will not require such a commitment. But if you plan to stay, be ready to run. Your team needs you. I think this whole thing, right, there's there's nothing in here that I was like, that is beyond, right, genius. But it was just, it was well articulated, I thought, and really simple to understand. And I thought on point. Yeah, so I want to do the the eighth tweet in this okay. thread okay. because the ready to run is important so he talks about uh basically african proverb every morning in africa gazelle wakes up it knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed every morning in africa a lion wakes up it knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death it doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle when the sun comes up you better be running that's what he's saying he's saying if you're in the startup world and you're the startup world expert on the show, Dougals, it's time to run. And and the metaphor there is like, work your ass off. I mean, execute better than you have been. And maybe in a way that you don't even know how to do based on the environment for the past five years. Bill Gurley is just so great. I'm sorry I got distracted by all your Battier uh, <laughs> loving there. And but- the snow shovel nonsense. We used to do a, a snow shovel case study for some of our hires. I got to tell you about that sometime. Uh, I know the snow shovel business like you could not believe. Oh um, this is really good stuff. Because I want to ask like the the practical. I'm not a startup guy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm wired for it. And I certainly, I ride business cycles and the stress that comes with like a more consistent company on my sleeve and it can keep me up at night and those sort of things. Like I'm not wired for it. What does this mean for the people that are maybe new to the startup world and, and only experienced that last five years? Like what is the advice you read the Bill Gurley thread and you go, wow, he's smart. And this totally resonates with me, but I don't know how to change, you know, like how do people actually follow this advice? So what I'm going to say is going to maybe sound too high level and vague, but I think it's not high level and vague if you're honest with yourself. Here's what I would say. Ask yourself two questions. 
the first question is, am I good at what I do? Like, am I really good at what I'm doing? The second question is, am I doing the best at that thing that I could be? And if the answer to both of those is not yes, you should think about something different. Now, I said it's going to be sound high level and vague, but I say that because when in an environment like we're entering into, I think in general startup world, but especially an environment, it's concentrated environment we're probably entering into, like you got to be really good at it and be working your butt off because somebody else is. And yeah, but yep, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so his last tweet, I want to read it again. Startups, private companies are not for everyone. If you don't want this type of environment or responsibility, there are many wonderful jobs at large profitable companies that will not require such a commitment. I mean, are you saying the same thing in a different way? Yeah. Are you saying, okay. Yeah. That, that's what it means. The thing that the, the thing I'm abstracting out of here though, is like, are you good at what you do? Cause he, he's saying you better be ready to work hard. And the thing yeah. I'm adding is, are you good at it? Right. Cause you could be, you can put in all the hours you want and not be particularly good. Like somebody might, we talked about this before, right? When, when you, I can't remember, it was a, maybe a few months ago, other consultants, right. Who are like really good at the thing. And so they're like, I could actually do this in four hours, but I have to show that I worked for 50 hours so that people yep, think it's yep, right high yep. quality. You should probably be one of the people that could do the thing in three hours and do it for 50 hours, like le legitimately do the thing. Mm -hmm. Like that is the, that's what I'm talking about. Like be that good at it and push is what it takes here. That's the, the other thing I'd add on what uh, Bill Durley says. But in generally speaking, I think what he's saying is right. You got to be ready to run. And it's exhausting. Yeah. Period. All right. Okay. My fishbowl might yeah, be just as it. depressing as that. We've talked a ton about meme stocks, right? And yeah, reversion to the meme. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and we've also talked a ton, more than I would like to admit, about Alibaba and the meme stock king almost, Ryan Cohen of Chewy.com fame jumped in with the position in Alibaba and Diggles, this ha just has me scared for my life. I don't want to be associated with Ryan Cohen. I don't want the, <laughs> he, he owned GameStop. Like he did all this stuff and he's walking in. He, I love this. I'm sure it's not his fault, but the way the wall street journal writes it up is it's like, he did this deep dive on Alibaba shares and realized they were undervalued. Well, yeah, they went from like 300 bucks a share to 60 bucks a share. Of course they were undervalued. And then he's like, and they should buy some more. They should buy back some more shares. Yeah, they generate tons of cash and their stock is cheaper cheap. Like anyone with a brain could walk it again. Not a <laughs> not Ryan Cohen's fault because he's right. But like, I'm like, this is the big activist decision that Ryan Cohen is making here that the stock went way, way down and they generate cash and they should buy some more shares. Of course they should. Anyway, I don't know what to do. I'm in a, like a midlife crisis for Alibaba's stock ownership because <laughs> if it turns into a meme stock, I, I just am going to have to sell the thing even if it's undervalued, I think. Well, I mean, you ride it for a little bit. You know, I got Alibaba scars right now. You know, I got Alibaba scars right now. The what? best scars possible. Okay. But scars. If you want to go there, what Dougals is referring to is that he, he, um, when he rebalanced his quantitative portfolio, you correct me if this is wrong, but you ended up exiting your stake. Yep. You sent me a text message and I said, exactly, this is from memory, <laughs> what, you don't like making money? That's exactly what I said. And <laughs> now 
Look what's happened. Apparently, I don't. You have profits yeah, on the uh, table, man. Yeah, I know. I still, I've still made made decent money on Alibaba, but sure. I the opportunity cost of that sell is probably going to be one of the larger opportunity costs I will have. <laughs> um, so there's that. Anyway, well, I mean, I'll probably blog about it. More generally, Alibaba's performance recently has been great. Listen, this isn't my first rodeo. I've done this for a long time. I expect to make a lot of money on Alibaba. What's likely to happen in the next three months is it's going to be incredibly turbulent and maybe fall off a cliff again. Like this is not going to be an easy ride. So I'm not of the mindset of like counting my profits or anything, but the Ryan Cohen stuff is very interesting. He's also, so he's worth two and a half billion dollars. He only invested a couple hundred million. If I remember correctly, 10% of his 10% of his worth. That's not nothing. You and I both really like investing. I think if I get to the point where I'm worth two and a half billion dollars, I'm probably not taking activist stakes in companies and like having the stress level that comes with trying to fight Alibaba's board to buy more stocks. I'm probably like hanging out with my friends. Yeah. What's interesting is when I know from experience, not, but so what I'm about to state is just like kind of speculation. But when you have this amount of money, and you're trying to invest large chunks of it in one place is you then have a bunch of paperwork to do regardless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you have people to do that, but well, I guess what I'm saying is it's not like a, if he could just go into fidelity has broke fidelity brokerage account and buy some Alibaba, like he might do that. And I don't know, I don't know. Right. He might just do that. But if you're having to, like, you have to do this paperwork anyway, it's kind of like, well, I might as well get involved. Like, I don't know. Like, it's it's a whole bunch of no, work anyway. Well, so I think about it differently. Um, I mean, how do you think Wall Street Journal got the scoop? He he went to okay, the Wall right, Street yeah, Journal. Yeah, yeah, he's right. he's trying to create buzz of Chewy.com founder. Like, so he can not Make pump and dump, but kind of pump and dump. Like, oh, Ryan Cohen's job. He wants, I'm sure he wants to stop money to come over there. and Nothing happened this week. Well, also, I mean, a little bit. Sorry, a little. China's GDP came out with the crazy bad news, and I mean, yeah, nothing happened. Yeah. Anyway, send condolences my way because I don't know how I'm going to make it through the next week being a owner of a meme stock. It's a really tough time for me, Diggles. (laughs) Don't cry for me, Argentina. Says Skippy. Okay, I've got two things in the fishbowl here i think one of them is going to be a quick hit and then i'll just share the link uh, on the sub stack because it's boring to talk through charts so like it's hard in audio to get through charts but and i want to talk about cash management as well so i'm going to get through the stock charts first there's this paper that came out actually a few years ago but i just came across it that's a it's called stock charts you've never seen and lo and behold what it has is some stock charts i've never seen what the paper does is it says typically when you're looking at the long-term history of the stock market, the chart that's shown is one that starts in January of 1926. That's when the CRISP data, the Center for Research and Security Prices that comes out of North Chicago, that's when the CRISP data starts, which is like the official data set, right? That's when that starts. And then it goes until whenever. And that chart looks aggressively up into the right. You see a couple dips, but the narrative that comes along with it is 
buy and hold, long-term investing in the U.S. is the way to go. You don't lose money over the long term, et cetera. And so it says that's the typical narrative. If you look at other periods, yeah. buy and hold looks not quite as straightforward is what it says. And so a couple of the graphs that it shows that I'd never seen, one, one looked at the, so where this actually, sorry, the graph that they show for that long-term, like typical is from 1926 to 2007, by the way. So it's right before the 2008 drop. It says, if you look at a, a different 81 year period, right? So let's, let's look at the period that is from 1851 using different data sets. So it's using different data sets. Let's start from 1851 and go to 1931. Now you're looking at a period where you basically have, it's basically flat. There's turbulence in it, right? Because you have, you have ups and you have downs, you have ups and you have downs, and then you have the 1929 crash and it comes back down. It's like now during this 81 period. Well, I mean, they cherry picked that, that this period ends <laughs> at the bottom of the Great Depression, which is fine. I love the point of like, it's not guaranteed that they're going to, I'm sure you're going to talk about, they're going to do 30 year periods where it's effectively flat. Um, but that is pretty like you shouldn't end your back testing at the peak of the twenties bubble or the trough of the, no. And they, they say that like, they absolutely say that like a yeah. part of, part of what they say, there's a piece of it. That's let's look at a different 80 year period. And there's a part of it where they say like a lot of times when you look at the charts that people choose, they stop at this peak, which is what they chose to do. This this paper came out five years ago. So they had the data <laughs> for the 10 years after 2007. They stopped it then for a particular reason. And then here they're like, what if we choose like a bottom area, but it's also 80 years. Like it doesn't look all that great, right? Um, and the other point that they brought up with this chart in particular is if you look at the bottom in 1931, um, they also say that oftentimes when you look at when uh, in the US, when thing when the stock market comes back from a bottom, the narrative is you don't hit that bottom again. Like then it goes up to the right and they go, if you look mm. at this chart, the, it's yeah. not actually true. But uh, if you look at this chart and you look at the bottom of 1931, it's pretty similar to the bottom in 1921. They're like, so really what that drop did was you eliminated the 20s boom. Like that, yeah. that's what happened. Yep. It said the 20s boom is done. Uh, and that that's actually fairly frequent. So one thing when I was reading this, I went, if you look at the, the bottom um, of the dot-com crash and you look at the bottom of the great financial crisis, I actually think they're pretty similar. So I think that that is a, if I, I'm going, I'm doing that from memory, but I think that they're like fairly similar. So regardless, sure. regardless, that's, I like just want point. to jump in, give credit where yeah. it's due. This is Edward McQuarrie from uh, Santa Clara university, but professor McQuarrie, if you're listening, I can teach you how to format Excel charts. Just <laughs> friendly <laughs> off there's, of that. There's, this is not pretty. It's not pretty. All right, I'm going <laughs> to hit on two other points uh, and then we can move on. Uh, another is they say if oftentimes when you look at long, term periods in the US, they look at like 20 year, 30 year periods and things look so great, so wonderful. They looked at a 30 year stock chart from 1919 to 1949, which is also pretty flat. And they're like, mm -hmm. right. So to your point around cherry picking, they just went, there are these really broad narratives that exist. And if you start to take those broad narratives and look at other points, don't always feel like any period is going to look like any past period like that that's kind of like the broad point which i i get i enjoyed this because as advertised i look at a lot of stock charts and there were some stock charts i never seen <laughs> so i was like oh that's, that's pretty awesome 
And the last one I'm going to touch on here is this is kind of obvious, but I still, for some reason, think it's kind of cool is they, they did this analysis where they looked at that, um, that same broad period, right. That they mentioned at the beginning. So from the twenties to the 1920s into the early 20th century, and they looked at total return, total return and nominal total return, which means that you don't take out inflation or anything and you reinvest all the dividends. And they said up to the right, looks fantastic. When you make that the real return, so you take inflation out of your returns and you don't reinvest dividends, what happens? And we know that dividends are incredibly important, but I think that this was really powerful, like to look at it in this way. And it was something like a, I think like a 3x return that you get as opposed to like a 2,500x return that you get um, in that same period. And so, that that basically says that 99.7% of the returns during this period came from inflation and dividends. And what especially, which I think we would have known anyway, what especially hit me here, and I'll let you jump in, sorry. What especially hit me here that I thought was interesting was this thought that during this period, you had this these lulls, like so you had some flat periods, right? You had the Great Depression and everything. And so you yeah. had these decent sized periods of dividend reinvestment at like craterous bottoms. And when you kind of going back to our SLG conversation, again, I'm not saying SLG is going to do this, but when you have these periods of bottoms and you're reinvesting and you're reinvesting and reinvesting, and then you have a slingshot, which kind of started from the 1950s on all that reinvestment then pays off like wildly, um, which is another thing that, that they brought up. All right. I've been talking about charts. I apologize but I've never seen them before. No, it's really good. And I don't want to talk too much about this, but um, this is why I buy based on valuation because you do get these 30 year, 50 year periods where uh, Vitaly Katis Nelson calls this a range bound market. And he has a book specifically talking about some of these periods. It's called active value investing, making money in range bound markets. Really good. If you're concerned about this case, it will walk you through when to buy, when to sell, some of the best sell criteria I've ever come across and how, whether it's a reinvestment of dividends or some sort of dollar cost averaging into a range bound market, you can still make great returns. So I would, I don't want to bore people with it, but like there's ways to do that. These charts are jarring when you go, wait, my whole life I've been told that the th over a 30 year period, if I just put money away, I'll be fine. For the most part, you probably will. But there's more to it than that if you're in a period like this. And if you're in a period like 24 months ago, I mean, we were on the pod telling you how expensive U.S. stocks were. And that's why my portfolio has been more international. And you, you have to make adjustments when things get really expensive because otherwise you are going to go nowhere potentially for a 30-year period. Okay, uh, same token here. In my fishbowl, there's a article we will put on the Substack. It's called Predicting Stock Market Returns Using Schiller Cape and uh, Press the Book. It's by Norbert Kremlin, who used to lead Star Capital. He's German, does really good stuff. If you have any interest in how people value stock markets to make quality predictions like a decade out, just read through this article and look at his charts. Yep, I followed him for years. He does really good stuff. 
I think th- that can demystify kind of how all these value shops say this is what is likely going to happen over the next seven to 10 years in a specific market because over that time frame, the valuation and the expensive nature of the stock market does have some predictive power and you'll see why if you look at his charts. So just a shout out there. Love it. Cool. And we'll throw that on the Substack on Monday as well. So you can check that out. Anything else for you? All right. I do want to talk about cash management, which is the management of cash. And I want to talk about this because we're in this interesting time, which you've touched on before, Yeah. where you've got short-term treasuries that are paying some rates that are fantastical. Fantastical rates and where to find them. I think J.K. Rowling wrote a book about this. <laughs> so I'd love to talk about it. I don't know if you want to kick off, you want me to kick off, because I'm I'm more of a, I mean, I'm kind of ashamed to say, but just more of a novice, I think, in this world. Because I, up until when you started poking and prodding me, I was like, I got my stuff on my savings account, my savings account, rates are going up. Back up off me, player. And then you went, yeah. I will not back up off you. I want you to take a look at something. And you showed me a couple screens that changed my life. Well, I've just, I've just always been really sensitive to this. And, and part of it's my background in banking. I know exactly how the business model works. And so what the banks have done really in the last decade is realize that uh, people's deposits are very sticky. And so it's only investing nerds like me and you that would work with a Fidelity or a brokerage account to either buy brokered CDs. I can, uh, define that in a little bit or like treasuries or other sorts of fixed income that are very, very safe if you do it right and create your own bank and make a four to 5% return when the bank of America's in the world are still paying 0.22%. And so, yeah, I've done the rants on this before and it's relevant. It's important. It one, it feels so much better to get a decent return. That's risk-free and two, you know, if inflation's at 7% and you're making 5%, you're still probably losing a few bucks. But imagine how far you're falling behind if inflation's at 7% and you're making 0.2% at Bank of America, right? No, having liquid cash on hand is a very important part of whether you're a business or uh, individual. Like it's something you need to have. So you might as well manage it smartly. I'm really think I don't like to be thankful to you very often. But I'm really thankful to you that you like open my eyes to this because I had so the whole 0.2% at Bank of America thing, I was I was, you know, already up on that, right? You're better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had my money, my cash money, primarily in high yield savings accounts. And so I was like, I thought I was doing I thought I was doing my thing, right? Mm -hmm. Celebrating it. I had billboards, got a tattoo on my wall about it. (laughs) And then you kind of open my eyes. And so where my allocation is right now, just to give folks a sense of it's across four different areas, savings, so high yield savings. I still got a little bit in there. Treasuries, short-term treasuries, corporate bonds. That's a small amount, corporate bonds. Yeah. Uh, and then I-bonds, which we've talked about a whole bunch as well. And this has roughly taken my annual, as it stands right now, my annual like savings liquid cash yield, fairly liquid cash yield from about three and a half percent to closer to five and a half percent. That's huge. Yeah. You, Skippy, have increased my savings by about 50%. Like the, the amount of interest I'm getting from, from this stuff. Like, of interest. It's like 
Dougals, I'm awesome. getting uncomfortable here. We, we don't have to talk about me. Let's just talk about the average. So one, um, <laughs> enough about me, enough yeah, about like, me. <laughs> you're probably a little more. I don't think your average person needs treasuries or corporate bonds, right? Uh, I think that's going to make most people's heads explode because you have to learn how bonds are priced and why they'll move with interest rates and move inversely to interest rates. Like it gets pretty complex, but I'll tell you, if you have a fidelity account and you want to buy some brokered CDs, I told you I'd define that, but like basically all the banks will go into they'll partner with someone like a fidelity and they'll offer CDs for large purchases. You can purchase quarter of a million bucks you can purchase a million bucks you can there's like there's smart ways to do that and so businesses do that to diversify their risk and get more fdic insurance but also make better returns the average person say you're sitting on 10 grand and you've already done uh, the treasury direct i bond stuff you can go in buy cds again you could buy cds from bank of america six month term probably making four and a half percent right now when Bank of America on their own website will tell their consumers that the best rate they can give them on a 12-month CD is like 2%. It's highway robbery that they'll offer that up to other people and not do it on their internal platform. And you just got to know where to look. You, I mean, you're right. You don't need to get too complicated with it, but I love it. I think you're absolutely right. If you just like a couple clicks, you can be a couple clicks away from something that is safe, FD, FDIC insured. Um, and if you're, if you can have your savings sit somewhere for about six months, you can make a pretty decent increased return from what you get on the normal high yield savings. And especially on the low yield savings that you might get at like a bank of America, Wells Fargo, or some of the other major banks. And it, since you got me on my soapbox here, even if you think that's too much work for you, if you're comfortable with a money market fund, if you know what a money market fund is, Again, I'll use Fidelity as an example. You can throw money in Fidelity. Uh, current rates are 3.9%. They buy short-term government debt, which is very similar to the FDIC insurance that the government provides on bank accounts. It's not the same. It's slightly more risky. And you can make 4% with doing nothing. And those rates will rise as the Fed increases rates because that's the whole mechanism that they're using to pay you interest on that. So there's lots of options out there to, I call it creating your own bank rather than being at the mercy of the bank. Love it. Just thank you. Appreciate it. That's all I got. Diggles, I feel like I'm on punked or something. This, yeah, the demon when twins. When does the other shoe up. drop? <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I hope you enjoyed today. We were all over the place, but it's fun for us. Again, we love reviews. Um, share the show with a friend if you get a chance. We've seen listenership grow, and that's always fun for us. Hit us on uh, with listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com, and check out the Substack, which you can get to via skippydoogles.com. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>